rest of us are going to be in the Gospel according to Luke, and we're going to be looking at the 18th and 19th chapters, a portion from each of those chapters this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, that is. If you're like me, um, sometimes you struggle seeing the immediate relevancy uh, of the earthly life of ministry that Jesus had. You read about Jesus, you see what he does, you're amazed, it's extraordinary, and yet, how does that relate to my life? Well, he died for my sins and he rose again from the dead, and he did that for me, and that's good, and absolutely, I'm glad we have fire insurance, um, is kind of how we think of it sometimes, and when we're honest, we, we, we struggle with seeing the direct connection. And so, and here I am as a pastor studying this portion of scripture, earthly life of uh, earthly, earthly ministry of Jesus, and thinking, okay, how can I impress everyone and show them just how utterly relevant it is to their life this past week? And uh, it just doesn't always jump off the page like that. But think about your life this week, last week. Maybe not your life, maybe you had a super awesome week and you're just blown away by that or you had a terrible week and you were only ever thinking about Jesus. And uh, those are the extremes, but if you had a pretty normal week, so what's the relevancy of the earthly ministry of Jesus? Hmm. I had a pretty normal week, so I guess I'll have to use myself as the example. I've seen some of you today, and, and you haven't had normal weeks, so I'm sorry about that, um, for good or for bad. So pretty normal week, so what's the relevancy of Jesus doing all these things? Jesus the Messiah, the promised King. Why should I care about the promised King, the promised Deliverer, the promised Son of David? Relevancy. Hmm. Well, Amidst all the normal things, I, I thought about my week, and I had a doctor's appointment. Uh, it went well. I hadn't had a checkup in 20-some years, so that's probably a pretty good thing. Um, and it was positive. And then they want to know about your medical history, and so, uh, oh, your dad died when he was 55, your mom died when she was 66, and then they kind of give you this look like they feel bad for you, um, you know, because I'm 45, so writing's on the wall, tick-tock, tick-tock. Uh, it's just kind of always, it's a downer. Then I tell them, my grandparents live to be in their 90s, and then it gets a little bit better. But, um, but all of that to say, I, I, I did leave the doctor's office reminded of my mortality like I wouldn't have been reminded if I hadn't gone to the doctor that week. This week, kind of standing out for me also was uh, watching the news. I've been looking at the Jerusalem Post, because, Lord willing, I'm going to be in Jerusalem in February. And uh, you didn't have to look at the Jerusalem Post this week to see news in Jerusalem. Uh, you could have watched any kind of news where there were Muslim terrorists who murdered uh, four Jewish rabbis in Jerusalem in their synagogue. And in some ways, I'm glad they uh, didn't show the, the, the full video on our news, but you, couldn't, you can see the full video if you look at the Jerusalem Post news. Never seen anything like it except in a movie. Well, I'm mortal. I think Jesus Messiah is relevant to me. Um, I live in a world where there is terrorism and amazing acts of violence, even in the name of God, 
Jesus as Messiah, coming deliverer, ruling, reigning, just king is relevant to me on a different level. Our president addressed the nation this week. I have to confess to you, I didn't hear it or see it, but I happened to be listening to the news the next day, and it was amazing. They were just so fired up and worked up, and both sides, Democrats and Republicans, and so upset. And, and then it's talking about politics and politicians and making promises and breaking promises, and they're quoting you know, the president from earlier against the president. And it was just bizarre. You know, politicians make promises and politicians break promises regardless of political party, and that's kind of how it goes. Reminded of the fact that Jesus as son of David, Messiah, King, ultimate, perfect, deliverer, just one, is relevant in my life. And how we do need him in this world. And how his earthly ministry that gave a preview of that is relevant even as I'm having a normal week. Another point in my normal week this week was applying for a loan. Isn't that fun? Uh, now, if you're going to apply for a loan to buy a new car, that's kind of fun, right? You can't even see straight. You just sign and it doesn't even matter because I'm getting a new car. Um, applying for a home improvement kind of loan, looking into rates and different things. Why? Because our roof is no good. And until it's made good, insurance won't cover the roof. How nice. So I get to take out a loan so I can buy a roof. Um, oh, not only that, the windows are rotted through. That is exciting. To buy windows for your house? It's awesome. I think, it, was the bid 13000 or 16000 I can't remember. And an $8,000 roof, and we're rolling now. Uh, maybe we'll never get a new car, you know? Uh, Oh, and the appliances, you know, we've been in the house for 10 years, and the house is, you know, oh, we might as well just add appliances to the list too. And that's so exciting to have a new refrigerator where the water thing works. It doesn't squirt behind the fridge. I mean, one day everything will work. And I haven't even talked about my own struggle with my own sin. I haven't even talked about trying to help Christians act Christianly and watching plenty of Christians, at times myself, not act Christianly. Relevance of Messiah? Perfect, ruling, reigning king who will remove everything that harms us and everything that causes us to grieve? just in a normal week is utterly relevant if I just take the time to pause and get over the being comfortably numb and in and, and, and denial kind of mindset. If I just look and see what's happening around me, if you look and see what's happening around you, you see that the world is broken, your life is broken, your things are breaking. We need someone who will come and fix everything. And when Jesus is on earth, he's giving a real life, candid, historic preview of coming attractions. So all of these things that he does, he's doing because he's showing what it will be like one day and it will last forever. And so 
with that in mind, let's, let's see this certain Jesus, who's the certain Messiah, the certain deliverer, as he's giving us these previews, I hope with a greater appreciation. That's what we'll do this morning. I have an outline of four aspects of the certainty of Jesus as Messiah, Messiah that is King. And so we'll, we'll follow that outline this morning. We're going to look at a larger section of the narrative. We'll look at verses 31, 1831 through 1927. And so it's, it's a narrative that'll go fast, big portions. But let's start by looking at the certainty of Jesus' victorious defeat. The certainty of Jesus' victorious defeat. So you get the idea there. I'm not saying Jesus was ever ultimately defeated, but on purpose defeated, and it's certain that it's going to happen, and that is good news for us because it has to do with our redemption. So let's begin looking at verse 31 of chapter 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. That would be the city of destiny for Jesus. We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man, we're going to come back to that, by the prophets will be accomplished. And again, if you're just reading the Bible for the first time or maybe the first few times you read it and you go, okay, I can see what's going on. He's going to go there and he's going to die. He's going to talk about that. That's important. You're absolutely spot on. But there's a, there's a jump off the page title that's used that we need to be able to pick up on. And a lot of you already have because you're, you're used to reading your Bible and you know how to connect some dots. Son of man, the son of man will go up to Jerusalem. That makes sense because son of man is a title for Messiah. It's a kingly title. It's a title for the one who would come as the great deliverer. It makes sense. He would be going to Jerusalem, Mount Zion, rule and reign. This is exciting. But it's going to be for something bad, as we will see in a moment. But I at least want you to, to, to know when you, you see Son of Man, that's a, that's a title for Messiah. It, your Sunday school teacher didn't do you a good service when they said, Son of God means deity, Son of Man means humanity. It's, it's an oversimplification. Borrowed from the Old Testament, or it's coming right out of the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter 7, Son of Man is the forever reigning, ruling king. It's okay to think of humanity because he's actually going to be human. He is human, but he's more than human if he's going to reign forever. So I'll I'll quote Daniel 7. You can write it in your margin. I would if I were you, unless you already know this by memory. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, my translation rightly, rightly capitalized, ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, that's think, think rule, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Hugely important throughout the whole Old Testament as you would connect dots with promises made to David which we may get into later. Promises made about a new covenant and this forever lasting kingdom. Who will be the one? He's like, a son of man. Oh, 
Jesus says, the Son of Man will go up to Jerusalem. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for. The long-expected Jesus, the long-awaited one, Messiah, Deliverer, Anointed King, who will make all the wrongs right. But what will happen to Him? Back to our text, verse 32. For He, that is the Son of Man. I I wrote it in, I I, I went from, from red text to black text and inserted the Son of Man, exclamation point. The Messiah, for He, the Son of Man, the Messiah, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging Him or whipping Him, they will kill Him and on the third day He will rise? That's, that's where we go, what? We should. The Son of Man is the forever ruling reigning one. But here, Jesus is spelling it out for us according to plan. That forever ruling reigning one will be mistreated, delivered over. Ultimately, he's going to be crucified. That's important. It's important because apart from that, what? There's no forgiveness. Apart from that, we don't have, we don't have reconciliation with God. We don't have atonement. We don't have pardon. We don't have salvation. And so that's relevant for us because, hello, we're sinners. We're lawbreakers. So he's going to give himself over so that that is done. It's also important that we remember as we're reading the drama and it's unfolding that it doesn't happen by accident. It's not, oh, poor Jesus, wrong place, wrong time. No, and let's make it personal. When Jesus went to go and die in your place, it was out of love. It was out of intentionality. It was according to plan. It was according to purpose. We could rewind back to in eternity past, according to Ephesians chapter 1, this was planned. Um, Started unfolding in Genesis chapter 3 in history. We can go there and see that. So redemption can happen. It's according to His purpose. So atonement can be made. It's relevant to me, it's relevant to you because we're, we're, we're sinners. I love Acts chapter 2 verse 23. It's a great cross-reference. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Or Acts 4.28, speaking to God to do whatever your hand, God's hand, and your plan, God's plan, had predestined to take place. So as we're reading the drama, it's all according to intention. It's all according to plan. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the crucified one, and he's doing this out of intentional love for people like us. I need that kind of Savior. I'm thankful for that kind of Savior. A real savior, not just a martyr. It's important that we see he's not just a martyr. And then in verse 34 it says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And maybe we should at least pause for a moment before we move on and say, Why? 
we could say, well, they didn't understand because they were, they were spiritually inept. And we could, we could prove that we all are apart from God's grace in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. But it's interesting here that it actually doesn't put the emphasis there. It puts the emphasis on hidden from them. So let's be careful as we speculate because it doesn't say exactly why it's hidden from them. But one guess would be, a good guess that I've learned from others, because Jesus has to go alone. There's no support. There's no dependence on anyone else. Jesus will voluntarily he will go. Or there's no conflict. They're not going to keep him, you know, they're going to try, but he's going to do it all on his own. He is the one and only redeemer, the one and only perfect substitute. And he's going to go and he's going to go all alone and he's going to succeed all alone. And so when we fast forward, who is our confidence in now, even in the 21st century? It's in the all alone Jesus might be what's in view. We won't take the time to go there, but after Jesus rises from the dead, he takes his disciples. In Luke chapter 24, we will go there in 10 years or so. In Luke 24, verse 45, it says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it was written, and he goes on to talk about the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So in the midst of your sin, in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of others' sin, we at least have great confidence in this Jesus who is intentionally going up to Jerusalem because he's intentionally going to be crucified because he's the intentional Savior. And that is relevant. (laughs) Needless to say. Let's go on to another. Number two, another aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry that is very important and shows the relevancy of his Messiahship. Number two, the certainty of Jesus' restoration work. The certainty of Jesus' restoration work. Beginning in verse 35, if you would read along with me, you'll see that it says, as he drew near to Jericho, it's a tax collection city, if you will, on the main route to Jerusalem. So they're going to Jerusalem, they go by Jericho, A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, important that we get this title here, Son of David, have mercy on me. So he he has heard about Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, but apparently he knows enough about the reputation of Jesus of Nazareth, where he's from growing up, to put two and two together. See, the guy is blind, but he can see. To put two and two together. If Jesus of Nazareth does those things, then Jesus of Nazareth is actually the son of David. Which is a lot like saying he's the Son of Man, because it's a messianic title. Again, when I say messianic, think Messiah means anointed when you anoint a king, like King David was anointed when he took his rule. 
Christ in the New Testament is just the word Christos that comes from the Old Testament word Mashiach, Messiah. It's just a carryover. It's just a way to translate it. So again, we jokingly say it's not Jesus and his last name is Christ. It's Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, anointed one, Jesus, son of man, Jesus, son of David. This guy's putting two and two together. And if you're a blind guy, you know, your life verses have to do with the fact uh, that he will restore the sight to the blind. I mean, that, that, that's how you think. He's the one. If he is the son of David, and by the way, Matthew 1, 1 calls him the son of David. If he's the son of David, here's my quick little list, then he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. If he's the son of David, he's the long-awaited promised one from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. If he's the son of David, he is the one who will rule forever. If he's the son of David, he's the one who rules over forces that harm humans. If he's the son of David, then he's the one who brings healing. Luke chapter 4, we learned it there. Luke four seventeen to 19, which is Jesus reading from and quoting Isaiah 61, which is a fascinating passage that has to do with the coming Messiah, delivering King, who will bring healing. He's the one who's the restorer. And you say, what does he restore? Wrong question. What doesn't he restore? rhetorically asking. <laughs> it's really good and important to think of Jesus as the one who takes your sins away because you really need to have your sins taken away, right? We can ask your spouse if you're married or your kids or your parents or your friends or your boss. It's really good that he does that. Just remember that he comes to restore us individually spiritually, yes, reconciles us to God, but he comes, if he's the son of David, son of man, Messiah, king, to restore everything. And to restore everything forever. And that's good. Because when that happens, everything will only and always be good. He's making a messianic confession. And that is a huge thing for this guy. Verse 39 says, And those who were in, in front rebuked him, telling him, to be silent, but, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And that really shouldn't surprise us when we're, thinking, um, when we're thinking biblically. Because if he's the son of David, he can do that. If he's the son of David, it would be right to expect him to be able to do that. I can't pass up the opportunity because it's such a, a, a current culture kind of rub 
Um, let me just remind you that he is not suggesting that his faith in himself would make him well. He's not suggesting that his faith in his faith would make him well. Um, he just said, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Your faith has made you well. The object of his faith would be Jesus. He sees Jesus for who he really is. Verse 43, And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. Oh, public miracle, not something that happened somewhere hidden on some island. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And if they're putting two and two together the way this guy's putting two and two together, this doesn't just have implication for the physical. This has implication for the political. This has implication for, for, for the, the cosmos, if you will. I'm not, we shouldn't give them that much credit based upon what will happen. Um, but they're probably saying even more than they realize they're saying. Before we move on, isn't it this twisted irony then that the one who brings the restoration, the one who is merciful and kind and forgiving and gracious is the one who just said he would go to Jerusalem to be crucified. I mean, apart from a sinful human heart, and obviously the greater, grander plan of God that takes that into account, apart from those things, he should be going up to Jerusalem to rule and reign from Mount Zion because that's what the Messiah will do. And as he one day will, but it won't be now, in this unraveling or this, this unfolding, if you will, of what's happening during his earthly ministry here. So, relevancy there, well, it's a good preview of coming attractions. If you're, if you're here today and trusting in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, you're trusting in one who is not ahistorical. You're trusting in one who actually came here with eyewitnesses, not a phantom, and he actually did these things. Relevancy? You actually need him to do them for you. <laughs> Just as this blind man actually will ultimately need a new body from this Messiah, Savior, Son of David, Christ. This is the preview of these things. We can be thankful for them. Number three, another aspect of the certainty of Jesus as Messiah. Uh, we'll see number three, the certainty of Jesus saving. Now we'll look at chapter 19, 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. And he was about to pass away, or excuse me, for he was about to pass that way. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. 
He has gone in to be, a, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Well, that's, yeah, he's a tax collector, so he's a sinner. Then verse 8 says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Tax collector, then he's called a sinner, then he's called a sinner. Yeah, everyone is a sinner, but you know he's the one that everyone culturally would say is a sinner. Corrupt, underhanded, reputation as a lawbreaker, despised. People don't like that guy. And Jesus comes as the Messiah because he's called the Son of Man to be the Savior, to forgive him of his sins, to solve this man's greatest dilemma. And it wasn't socially, it was with God. And he's trusting in the Messiah who is also a Savior. Not just a political king, not that that's not important, not just a healing king, even though that's important, but can deal with our ultimate problem. And our ultimate problem is God. And he deals with it. Salvation has come to this house. It's rather interesting that Again and again and again, Jesus makes the point that he came to save the lost. Like in Luke chapter 5, he doesn't come for healthy people. Just like a doctor doesn't help healthy people, he helps those who are sick. And we see with this guy. Why does he say he also is a son of Abraham? He doesn't elaborate, but I think the best way to explain that is, is he's like Abraham because... Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't inherently good. Abraham was a sinner. And yet he trusts in God's promise and according to Genesis and according to Romans and according to Galatians, God counts him a lawkeeper even though he's a lawbreaker. Well, this guy is a lawbreaker. But like Abraham... He's not trusting in himself. He's trusting in God to provide his righteousness. Isn't it ironic that so many times for the Jews, their pride would have been a misunderstanding of these things? We're sons of Abraham. Don't call us sinners. And here Jesus takes this guy who's classic textbook sinner. And he says, yeah, he's a son of Abraham. He is. You're not prideful because you're a son of Abraham. If you're a true son of Abraham, you're like Abraham and you believe God for your righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. By way of application, it's not exactly the same, but you know, to be a Christian and to be proud of it, to be self-righteous in the name of Christ, it's like utterly ironic and backward and crazy. Christian is someone who sees that they're incapable and incompetent spiritually and they're opposed to God and God is opposed to them and by God's grace you're trusting in Christ for your righteousness. 
Let's move on to the final one. Number four, another certainty about Jesus as Messiah that is utterly relevant to us. The certainty of Jesus judging. The certainty of Jesus judging. Before we actually read any further, just to bring you up to speed a little bit, Son of David, Son of Man, ruler, reigning, Messiah, King, does what a king does. And kings do positive good things, if they're a good king, and Jesus is. But they also judge. And they administer justice against lawbreakers. And they administer justice and punishment to those who oppose their rule and their reign. And if you have a perfect king, a good king, a gracious, kind king, and you oppose him and say, he's not my king, and he's the ultimate king, the son of man, the son of David, the one and only king, and you say, he's not my king, It's not going to go well for you. And there's a reason why people don't want to trust in Jesus as their Savior, as their God, ruler, reigner. And Jesus wants everyone to understand and know that if you're not embracing Him as the Messiah, you're facing His condemnation which is what you would expect of the Son of David, the one who will have eternal, let's use the word, dominion. Hard to compare him to other kings, because even the best kings and the best rulers have been sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And by the way, this is why this, there's the constant cry throughout the whole Bible and throughout all generations for, for, for true justice, true equity, true fairness. But it does come from a king. So let's go ahead and see. Verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's pretty reasonable. Okay? These guys aren't dummies. That would be a pretty reasonable thing to think. Okay, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, rule and reign. He's on his way. He's 18 miles out of the city. Drum roll, please, you know. This is when the soundtrack really gets big and Hans Zimmer does a great job with it, you know. In light of Messianic passages, especially like Psalm 2, he's, he's going to rule and he's going to reign. With, a, with an iron fist, he's going to. But immediacy is not the case. He has to be crucified. We know that. They didn't understand that, but he did. Verse 12 then says, He said, therefore... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Okay, think, think in terms of Jesus being gone and then returning. 13. 
Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And again, for your margin's sake, this is very Psalm 2-esque, which is Davidic, which is Davidic covenant, which is ruling and reigning Messiah King. We don't want him to rule over us. That's, going to happen. That's what's going to happen when he's gone. Okay, verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord... Here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Remember, that's not what he was supposed to do, but that's what he does. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. Remember, he's addressing the king... He's addressing the king this way and he's pointing his finger at the king and he's accusing him of wrong. So he doesn't submit to the king. By the way, that's what you do with kings. Instead, he attacks the character of the king, calling him severe, calling him unfair, which, as we just learned from the other accounts, that's not actually true, but that's the accusation. Here's what it might sound like um, in, in people's, uh, from people's mouths today. Heard something like this before? If he is that kind of God, I don't want anything to do with him. I've heard that a lot before. That's a really stupid thing to say. But that's really what's going on here. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. He's, he's using his argument against him. Taking what I did not deposit and, and reaping what I did not sow. Translators did a good job putting a question mark there. Oh, oh you knew that, did you? Really? I mean, if you really were thinking that way, why didn't you... Act to avoid my severity. You didn't even really think that about me. What you're accusing me of being, you actually, you yourself didn't even believe. I will, in fact, act severely toward you now. Again, never mind the fact that he's the king and none other than the king. Verse 23 says, Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, 
He has 10 minus. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And again, remember the context. They, they have not because of their refusal to acknowledge the kingliness of the king. Then verse 27 says, But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, see, there's the real issue. Jesus puts his finger on the real issue. They refused to have Jesus be the Messiah, to be the king, to be the authority. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Pretty sobering. But if he's the Messiah, the Messiah, He is gracious and He is kind and long-suffering and patient. He brings restoration. But to say, no, I am my own king. I'm in charge. And I write the rules. Logical necessity for a world where there is peace, Harmony, justice, would be no one is going to threaten the authority of the king. It's not even rational. Because now throughout history we've been waiting for the son of David, the Messiah, not Messiahs. He's the one. Psalm 2 really will be good homework for you to read through here today. But in Psalm 2, we learn the way to escape the harsh judgment from the King, the Messiah, the Son of David, is actually by God's grace to flee to Him and to find your rest in Him. Because when your rest is in Him, you're sane and logical. But when you find your rest in Him, you don't face the consequences for your own rebellion against him because he himself has given himself up. That's why Psalm 2.12 calls for a response and gives us the key, the answer, when it says, kiss the son. Again, you, 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 in the old verbiage, you, you, you kiss the king. You, you kiss his hand. You kiss his ring. You kiss... The, the idea is you, you, you pay honor to whom honor is due. And it says, kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And Psalm 2 is the psalm that's quoted again and again and again and again and again in the New Testament regarding Jesus as the son of David, the ruler, the reigning king. And so the moral of the story, so to speak, is that's relevant to everyone is to kiss the sun, to 
pay homage to the Son, acknowledge Jesus for who He really is. Then you're in touch with reality. Then you have atonement. Then you have reconciliation. Then you want justice. Because justice has already been dealt with when it comes to you because of what happened on the cross. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for a great Savior, Jesus. Thank you for the complexity of it all. Thank you for the simplicity of it all. We really do have a, 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 a heavy heart. I have a heavy heart for, for those who are, are so adamant and, and refusing to see Jesus for who He really is. In fact, those are the ones who really have a God delusion because they see themselves as God. And so by your sovereign grace and according to your mercy, open blind eyes and soften hard hearts. Thank you that you're that kind of God, that we might see Jesus for who he is. We may pay homage to him and find our safety in him. As we leave and as we, we have a burden to tell other people we know about this, even thinking of this coming holiday time, uh, help us to be the kinds of, of men and women and boys and girls who, who aren't um, self-righteous Christians. Help us to be those who know that we're, we're in fact guilty, but because of your mercy and because of your grace, uh, we have a Savior, Jesus, and, and help that come to even to come through in the way we talk to other people, the way we carry ourselves. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.